once again to worship. It's really wonderful to be here uh, as we kind of launch into the fall, which is always hard for me to say uh, here at the end of August uh, when it feels so fallish outside, doesn't it? Um, we're actually finishing up our summer series this morning on Proverbs. And we have been talking about Proverbs as a skill in the art of godly living. How do we navigate life when there's a lot of gray area? What does it mean to live a godly life? Well, so much of what Proverbs uh, is about is about that, building that skill. And we're going to finish here in talking about plans, talking about plans, our plans and God's. So if you will, let me pray for us before we jump in. Father, we are thankful to have uh, soaked in the wisdom of Proverbs this summer. We're thankful for your word, and we ask particularly, Lord, that you would open it to us today. Even more than that, that your spirit would be at work opening our hearts, opening our ears, opening our eyes, so that we might be changed by your word. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. But how do we orient ourselves to the future? That's really kind of the question that we're going to deal with today. How are Christians called to orient themselves toward the future? Maybe you can ask this in a couple of other ways too, is what do you do when you don't know what's coming up next? What do you do when you don't know what's coming up next? Now, that's a normal thing for us to ask. I think as human beings, we're always struggling with that question, but maybe even more pointed now because so much of what's coming up next is totally unknown for us. I mean, what's school going to look like? What's work going to look like? What is going to a restaurant going to look like? Are we going to have sports, right? I mean, these are big, important questions that we're trying to deal with, and we don't really know all of the answers to these questions. So what's coming up next is a big piece of how we wrestle with the future. Or maybe here's another question that's, you know, what do we do when the ways that we have planned things don't go according to the ways that we have planned things. When it came time for me to ask uh, Joy's dad if I could marry his daughter, uh, I thought I had a pretty good plan in place. What I did was I actually sent him a little letter, a note, a handwritten note that I was pretty proud of, in the mail that said, hey, I would like to have this conversation come up soon. I wanted to have it face-to-face, -face, right? I thought that was the way to do it, but I wanted to kind of prep him and get, get him ready for that. And I, I thought that was a pretty good idea. Well, little did I know that he was actually visiting Austin, where I lived, the next weekend. And so I thought, I want to have this conversation like sometime, not Saturday, but he's coming on Saturday. So I had to kind of gear up for having this conversation uh, a lot sooner than I thought. And in my mind, I thought, this is going to be great. You know, he's going to take me to lunch. He'll, he'll buy me lunch. You know, he'll smile really big. He'll give me a hug. He'll say, of course, you can marry my daughter. It's wonderful. I love you so much. And I look forward to having you in my family for the rest of my life. Well, it didn't go exactly that way either. In fact, when Joy's parents showed up, he, having, knowing what I was wanting to talk to him about, having received the letter, uh, he said, hey, let's, talk, let's go on a walk and talk. But... Um, but if you don't mind, before we kind of like talk, I need to exercise. So let's go on an exercise walk first. Well, Joy's dad, like Joy, walks at roughly 43 miles per hour. And so me trying to keep up with Joy's dad on a walk is pretty much laughable in any situation. 
But I've actually failed to mention a very important and key piece to this story, and that is the fact that between the time that I sent the letter and Joy's dad showed up at my apartment, I developed appendicitis. Of course, I don't want to let him know that any of this is going on or show any kind of sign of weakness. So on this 43-mile-an-hour walk, which I could never keep up with him anyway, uh, my appendix is slowly leaking poison into my body. So we finish the walk, and I've peeled myself off the ground, you know, somewhat, and he finally says, okay, great, what do you want to talk to me about? That did not really go the way that I had planned for it to go. You know, one of the most highlighted passages on Kindle. Amazon actually keeps track of how many times people highlight things in their Kindle, and one of the most highlighted passages comes from the Hunger Games uh, book two, and it's, it's this phrase, sometimes things happen to people and they're not equipped to deal with them. That phrase has resonated with more people reading their Kindles than just about any other. Sometimes things happen to people and they're not equipped to deal with them. How do we function in a world that's throwing lots of confusion at us? How do we function in a world where we're really not sure what's coming up next? How do we function in a world where things happen that we're not equipped to deal with? How do we orient ourselves toward the future? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today from Proverbs, is wise planning. Wise planning. And we're going to talk about it in four different contrasts this morning. The first is, is planning over passivity. The second is we over me. The third is faith over fear. And then the fourth one is kind of an application point that pulls them all together. And that is promise versus prediction. Promise over prediction. Okay? So let's launch into those four. We'll look at the first one here first. It is planning over passivity. Listen to these Proverbs. Here's Proverbs 21.5. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. And then Proverbs 24, 27, prepare your work outside, get everything ready for yourself in the field, and after that, build your house. See, one of the things that Proverbs really shouts to us is something that we probably already know deep in our hearts, and that is that good planning is important. Christians are called to good planning, to actually set out on a plan and do something about it. I read the other day about the, uh, the Hibernia oil platform. It's this oil rig in the North Atlantic. It's off the coast of Canada, and it's sitting in actually what they call Iceberg Alley because this area of the North Atlantic Ocean just has icebergs that are like as big as cruise ships, and they come crashing into everything. In fact, in 1982, I think, a similar platform like this sunk, and it killed 80, 84 people. So when they rebuilt this thing, when they, they set out to build the Hibernia, they wanted to make sure that that didn't happen again. So instead of having a floating platform, they attached it 275 feet down to, to the bottom of the ocean floor, anchored it to the bottom of the ocean floor so that it wouldn't move at all. And this thing is like something 750 feet high. It's enormous. And they've got not only the oil platform, but this, uh, this whole team of ships and this radio and satellite system that if there's an iceberg within 27 miles of this thing, 27 miles, they send out this fleet of ships that literally will lasso the iceberg and tow it away to a safe distance. 
or somehow break it up before it comes anywhere even close to this platform. Okay, so the, the builders of this thing do not want an iceberg coming anywhere close. But if it does come close, they've built it with these concrete teeth all around it, okay, so that an iceberg will come and these concrete teeth will immediately break up the iceberg. In fact, they say that this platform is built to withstand a one million ton iceberg. In fact, the engineers say that that's actually probably even just being generous. They think that it can withstand a six million ton iceberg with some repairable damage. Here's the great thing is a million ton iceberg comes around once every 500 years. A six million ton iceberg is predicted about once every 10,000 years. That's good planning. Do you know that the Bible says that God himself is a planner? We talked about this a little bit earlier, but that is one of the great truths that the Bible proclaims is that God himself has actually set out on a plan and he is at work accomplishing that plan. Listen to these words from the, uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a, a, a confession. It's a summary of Christian doctrine. This is what it says about God's plans. God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordained whatsoever comes to pass. Now, I don't know about you, but especially in times like these that are very confusing, that is a deeply comforting truth. That though it feels like things could be out of control, though it feels like our lives sometimes can be out of control, they are not out of control for God. He is actively at work pursuing his plans. And the Bible says that even when Adam and Eve broke the wonderful home that God had given them and brought sin into the world, that God set out on a plan to redeem and reclaim and renew all things. And that God is actively at work in the world, changing hearts, renewing people, forgiving and renewing and redeeming. And, you know, God has created humankind to reflect Him in that way. Men and women made in God's image are also called to be planners. Adam and Eve, when they were created, were, were given a garden to take care of. God told them, go, cultivate, plan. Like, go be architects and builders and city planners. Do something with this incredible thing that I've given you. We've called. We've been called to do that. And that, of course, should, should bring no surprise to us. We know that, that having a plan is a good idea. If you don't have a plan, usually things aren't going to go as well. You, you know that phrase your mom probably told you, right? If, if you aim at nothing, you probably will hit it. We know this from experience. I don't know if you've ever been to the grocery store without a plan, without a list, and then you end up, you know, back in the car with like a bag of apples and a couple of Slim Jims, and you're like, what happened here? I don't, I don't know what happened. I went in with a plan. That's what, without a plan, that's what happened. And you came back with weird stuff. Christians are called to, to, to good planning. But it actually goes deeper than that. In the scriptures. It goes deeper than that in Proverbs. I want you to listen as well to these Proverbs because not only are we called to good planning, Christians are called to planning good. Listen to this. Proverbs 12, 20. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but those who plan peace have joy. Now, devising evil may sound a little grandiose, but let's think about it for a minute. 
What are the plans that are oftentimes in our hearts that show up in some very subtle ways? The little tiny steps toward self-glorification, the little tiny steps toward maybe breaking somebody else down, the small whispers said about someone else in order to chip away slowly at their character and in somehow in contrast build yourself up. Or the slow, seemingly innocuous, you know, little moves to, to draw closer to someone who's not your spouse. The little text or the call or going out of your way to go by that person in the office. They don't seem like big, evil plans, but they are slow, incremental steps toward what the Bible says are evil. And not only are we not called to pursue evil plans but also to plan peace. Isn't it beautiful that the, the Proverbs don't say, you know, don't plan evil, but just allow for peace to happen? No, that's not what it says. It says, actually, we are called to plan peace, to plan good for those around us. What does it mean in your life then to, to be proactive about planning peace for the people around you? To be proactive about loving those closest to you, your family, your spouse, your children, your friends, your neighbors, the people in your community? What does it look like to be proactive about planning peace for your city? You heard Jason talk about one opportunity that we could take coming up really soon. So planning good and good planning are both key pieces to planning over passivity and what it means for us to be wise in the way that we understand the future. All right, that's, that's our first kind of point, our first set of contrasts. Let's move on to the second, and it's we over me. We over me is a huge piece of what it means for us to plan well. Listen to Proverbs 15.22. Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. And then 2018, plans are established by counsel, by wise guidance, wage war. What the Proverbs are saying is that planning works better in community. Planning actually works better in the context of others. You've probably experienced this before in a work meeting or in school when somebody comes up with a great idea, but because there are other people around, what ends up happening is that other people join in on that idea and what you end up with is something much better than what you began with. Collaboration almost always leads to better plans, doesn't it? We are called in the Bible to community kind of wise planning as well. We are called to actually see the other people in our life as beneficial pieces of God actually planning things for us. When somebody comes to talk to me about a decision they're making, I'd really like to marry this woman, I think, and I'm wondering if she's the right woman. Or I'm really not sure if, if, I, if I'm called to take this job or not. Or we're really not sure if we're supposed to buy this house. How do we think through that? What I usually do is I take them through this kind of decision-making triangle. Let's see if we can get it up here. Uh, about thinking through how to plan these things. And the first thing that we do is we talk about uh, the Bible. Oh, it went away. Uh, we talk about God's Word. That's where we start first. What does God's Word say about marriage? What does it say about the kind of person that you should be marrying? What does it say about the character of men and women? <laughs> it keeps going away. Um, 
It's okay. You can just leave it off if you want. We start with God's Word. That's always first, right? And we dig in there to see what God says about it. So is it lawful? Is it legal? Is it loving? We start there with God's Word. And then we move to a place where oftentimes people are kind of confused, and we talk about, all right, what about you? What do you want? Do you actually like this girl, and you want to spend the rest of your life with her? Because that's a pretty key ingredient to deciding if you're going to ask her to marry you. Does your family need a bigger house? What about you and your needs and your desires? How is God working in you, in wisdom in your own life? How is the Spirit at work in helping you make these decisions? But oftentimes we stop there, don't we? And we think, you know what, if I just spend a lot of time in God's Word and I just sit alone kind of on the top of a mountain and I pray a lot, then I will always come out with wonderful and wise, uh, you know, plans and, and strategies for my life. But that's not true, is it? We actually need others around us. And so that's that third piece of the triangle. What do the people around you think? And at this point, it's, it's really important not to be surrounding yourself, you know, with echo chamber kind of yes men and women who are always going to tell you what they think you want to hear. But what do the wise and trustworthy people around you think? What does the woman who's actually 20 years in front of you in child rearing think about how you should school your children or how you should discipline your children or how you should care for your children? What does the person who's been married for 45 years think about who you should ask to marry you? What does the person who's managed their money well for the last 50 years think about how you should be spending your money on a home? See, the Bible really says that it's, it's, it's very rare that we can make good decisions apart from others. Let me give you one more plug then for our community groups. Jason has laid the foundation for me, and I'm going to build on it. But these are wonderful places for us to be shaped in community together, to be shaped in wisdom in community together so that we can actually navigate our lives well in wisdom, and we need others to be a part of that. That might happen in the community group structure, meeting every other week or whatever your group decides, or it might be that you find somebody and say, you know what? What are you doing for breakfast next Thursday morning? Because I want to run something by you. We need to talk about some things. We need others in community with us if we're going to make wise decisions. So that's our second contrast, we over me. Here's the third, is that it is faith over fear. Listen to Proverbs 16, 2 and 3. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. And the 1921 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And then Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, really one of the foundational verses in Proverbs. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. We heard it from Isaiah 41 in our call to worship this morning, do not fear. You know, the Bible says that at least 365 times. There's one for every day of the year, do not fear. It's one of the things that God tells his people most in the scriptures, do not fear. But boy, it can be scary to make decisions, can't it? We get scared of decisions 
fear can actually be the thing that happens when we're trying to make a decision, right? Uh, you know, where's, what should I do with my kids? Like, should they go back to school in person? Should they go online? I don't know what to do. I'm afraid. I don't know if we should move our family to take this job. I don't know. I'm afraid. I've made this decision, but, you know, what if I made the wrong decision? What if it doesn't work out right? What if everything kind of goes haywire? Then what do I do? Right, a lot of fear can come from the decisions that we make, right? And a lot of the decisions that we make can come from fear. A lot of the decisions that we make can be driven by some of our deeper fears. The fear of being alone. The fear maybe of not having the kind of leisure time that we want to have. The fear of not being recognized and thought well of. The fear of having limits. These fears can oftentimes drive a lot of the decisions that we make that, by the way, might look just fine from the outside, but they are being continuously driven by fear. I read the other day that there are at least 12 American millionaires who have decided that they are going to conquer death, and they're going to have their bodies frozen and not only are they going to have their bodies frozen, but they've set up these really brilliant um, financial trusts that are going to be available to them 200 years from now when they're unfrozen. And so, you know, with the beauty of compounding interest, boy, they're going to have a lot of cash 200 years from now when we get to unfreeze them someday. You can make some really weird decisions driven by fear, can't you? But you know, the Bible says so often, do not fear. In fact, what we read in Proverbs 3 there is that we are to place our trust, our faith in the Lord. That he is to be the foundation, the stability for us, that we can actually go out and make decisions. We can make plans because there is something more secure. I read uh, of the news conference, I think 2003. This was the day after uh, the U.S. Uh, invaded Iraq, and, and Donald Rumsfeld, who was uh, the Secretary of Defense at the time, was giving a news conference, and there was this, there was this one uh, reporter who was, who was grilling him, and actually grilling him particularly about his failure to stick to the war plan, to which Rumsfeld, Rumsfeld uh, kind of dryly responded, I don't think you have the war plan. Isn't that really the key oftentimes to faith over fear for us? is that we think we've got the plan. We think we know exactly the way that it's all going to happen. And we've got our plans, and when they fall through, what do we do? But isn't there comfort in knowing that we don't have the war plan, but that God does? That is the key to faith over fear, is the humility to be able to say, God is in control, and I am not. And yes, I have the freedom to wisely make plans. And yes, I have the freedom to put one foot in front of the other and move forward in this world. And at the same time, I can hold that loosely because I'm holding tightly to the Lord. Martin Luther said, you know, I don't know the path that's laid out in front of me, but well do I know my guide. Isn't that great? Well do I know my guide. So let me just ask you, like, what are you clinging to for safety and security? What are you really trusting in? Is it the path that you think you have laid out for yourself? Or is it the guide? Are you holding tightly to your plans? Or are you holding tightly to the Lord? 
who is holding tightly to you. All right, let me finish with this last uh, kind of contrast. And it really, again, is kind of an application that pulls all of this together. And it is promise over prediction. Promise over prediction. So much of this actually comes from a, a, a guy named Andy Crouch, one of my favorite authors. I was listening to an interview of his, and they were talking about this very thing. Like, how do we, what do we do kind of with the world we're in right now? And, and how do we plan for the future? And how do we move forward? And it was really amazing what he was laying out as this contrast. He said, well, you know, one approach is prediction. And in fact, we've gotten pretty good at predicting things for the most part. We're, we're a lot better at predicting the weather now than we used to be. With computers and with available data so much more easily, you know, had and manipulated, we can actually predict things fairly well. But isn't it interesting that in the most important circumstances, our predictions have not really done us much good? Uh, I mean, meteorologists predict just about every summer that a, that a big hurricane will probably hit Louisiana. But Katrina still happened, didn't it? Do you know um, Bill Gates, about five years ago, basically predicted that the coronavirus pandemic would happen. He, he predicted something very similar would happen. And if you even go back as far as the presidency of George W. Bush, he, he actually gave a whole conference on this, on something very much like this happening. So it's not that we didn't ever see anything coming. Predictions have been made. What's actually really kind of crazy is that oftentimes the predictions do just the opposite of what they're supposed to do, is they create in us kind of this feeling of complacency, of overconfidence. Oh, we know what's coming next, so we don't really have to do anything about it, and so we're left unprepared. See, in the biggest circumstances, the predictions don't really usually end up doing a lot of good for knowing how we're going to navigate our future. So what Crouch offers is a very different kind of approach, and that is actually living our future with the shape of promise rather than prediction. See, promise says, I'm going to bind myself to this particular truth, and I'm going to live into that truth and hanging on to that truth no matter what comes. Promise actually allows us to shape our future on the premise of that promise rather than on what we think might come. Think of this example. Uh, 22 years ago, I think, I hope that's right, uh, Joy and I stood uh, at an altar in a church, and we looked each other deep in the eyes and held hands, and we said, uh, I predict that I will have and hold you for the rest of my life. Of course not. There's no way to do that. What we said is, I promise, I vow, I bind myself to you so that no matter what happens, this is how we are going to live. Eugene Peterson, actually stealing a phrase from Nietzsche, called this a long obedience in the same direction. And I love that image, a long obedience in the same direction. That is actually shaping your life according to promise rather than according to prediction. And of course, the, the wonderful foundation, the motivation of all of this for us is that God is a God of promise, isn't he? He's not a God of prediction, particularly for us. I mean, he hasn't told us exactly what our lives are going to look like. He's told us it's going to be hard, but he hasn't told us what tomorrow is going to be. 
He hasn't told us what's in store for us next week, but you know what he has done is he has given us promises. He has said, I promise that I'm at work in this world. I promise that I am making all things new. I promise that those who come to me in faith will be forgiven. I promise that my spirit will live in and among my people. I promise that Jesus, the king, will return to claim his kingdom and that there will be no more tears and there will be no more sadness and that we will sit at a banquet table with him and we will feast and we will celebrate. God has promised us those things. So what does it mean then for us to be bound to that? To be bound to that so that, yes, we can make wise plans in our lives, but we can hold them loosely Because what we hold tightly to is the promise of a God who does not break his promises. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this is glorious news for us that you have bound us with your promise. And so, Lord, we ask now that we would bind our lives even according to that. That we would be free to make humble and wise decisions, that we would be free to move forward in our lives, but we would be free because not, not because we're holding tightly to those plans, but because we're holding tightly to your promises. Lord, we thank you for Proverbs. I'm thankful for the reminder of what it means to pursue wisdom in our lives, but we are thankful even most of all for the one who is wisdom himself, for the word made flesh that has taken our sin upon himself. Lord, will you show us then how to live in his wisdom in all that we do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.